Hi, everybody. Welcome to another bonus episode of Producing the Beatles, where today we'll look at another solo Beatles recording. As many of you know, I recently co-wrote a book with Beatles scholar Ken Womack that covers the making of George Harrison's first solo album, All Things Must Pass. And over the next two episodes, I'll be exploring the making of two songs from the album using interviews and research we did for the book. First up, My Sweet Lord. When we talk about production with the Beatles, we rarely think of George Harrison, who, by 1970, had become a skilled producer in his own right. This fact was largely obscured by the dominance of Lennon and McCartney in the public's view of the Beatles, and by George Martin's own reputation as a star producer, which had peaked with the release of Sgt. Pepper in 1967. But in working with John and Paul and the Beatles' producer, George learned from the best, and he increasingly took control of the production of his own songs. He had such a keen interest in production, in fact, that he began producing artists for the Beatles' Apple label in 1968, and over the next two years would produce a total of five albums by outside artists. Jackie Lomax, Doris Troy, The Radhakrishna Temple, and most successfully, two albums with soul singer and keyboardist Billy Preston. In the production of George's first solo album, we often think primarily of Phil Spector, who had already produced Instant Karma for John Lennon in January 1970, and had also assembled the Let It Be album for the Beatles in March and April of that year. Spector was looking to start the second phase of his career, and his trademark wall of sound production seemed to find its ultimate expression on All Things Must Pass. But the image of Spector as the domineering producer, who forced cavernous reverb and orchestral overdubs onto George's songs, isn't really accurate. Today, we'll begin to unravel the myth of how All Things Must Pass was produced by looking at the making of My Sweet Lord. Along the way, we'll talk to the people who were there, from bassist Klaus Vormann to EMI studio engineers John Leckie and John Kurlander, and even legendary producer Chris Thomas, who made a brief appearance on keyboard during these sessions. As usual, we'll peel back the layers of this recording step by step and for the first time ever, we'll hear arranger John Barham's sublime string score for the song in complete isolation. So join us as we look at the recording of My Sweet Lord on this episode of Producing the Beatles. George Harrison's interest in spirituality had a long history. Longer, in fact, than the well-known conversations and interviews he gave around the subject during and after the Beatles. Here he is in March 1970, discussing his experience with religion at a young age. The thing that really got me interested was after being brought up as a, a Catholic until I was about 13, I, I couldn't take it any longer because it was just full of hypocrisy. And... Uh, the teachings of an Indian uh, called Vivekananda, which really impressed me, he said, if there's a God, we must see him. If there's a soul, we must perceive it. Otherwise, it's better not to believe. It's better to be an outspoken atheist than a hypocrite. Whereas the Catholics were teaching me to be a hypocrite. Just be a hypocrite. Believe what we tell you. Don't try to have any experience. But the whole 
basis of religion is to have the experience, have that perception. These ideas naturally started making their way into his songwriting, most obviously on Within You Without You from Sgt. Pepper and The Inner Light, which was the B-side of Lady Madonna. But even in While My Guitar Gently Weeps, George was looking at the world from a broadly philosophical perspective. I look at the world And I notice it's turning While my guitar gently weeps With every mistake We must surely be learning On January 6, 1969, during the Get Back sessions, George walked in proclaiming he had written what he called a gospel song entitled Hear Me Lord. As the year progressed, concurrent with work on the Beatles' Abbey Road album, George also began producing an album for Billy Preston, who was sympathetic to George's aspirations to express his growing spiritual interests through music. As George pulled double duty as a Beatle and as a producer, another source of inspiration appeared. A surprise worldwide hit in 1969, this song, Oh Happy Day, by the Edwin Hawkins Singers, reached number two in the UK in July of that year. And it's this recording that George would use as a key reference point when he began working on another gospel tune of his own later in the year. By the fall of 1969, George had finished both the album with Billy Preston and Abbey Road with the Beatles. So, in December, he tagged along with Eric Clapton on tour with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, a group that combined various styles of American roots music, including blues, soul, rock, and gospel. Here's George on stage with them on December 7th. George spent two weeks with the Delaney and Bonnie troupe, and in that time, he was introduced to slide guitar, and he would get the idea to write another so-called gospel tune. At least two people on that tour remembered George strumming two chords over and over on his acoustic guitar. And at the same time, George realized that Hare Krishna and Hallelujah had the same number of syllables. During a Delaney and Bonnie press conference in Copenhagen, he slipped away and began fitting these words to these two chords. Once back in England in January 1970, George continued producing a second album for Billy Preston, and he presented his new song to Preston, who helped finish the arrangement. Leaning into his gospel and soul roots, Preston took the song in his own direction. 
As he worked on Preston's album, George also produced an album with the Radha Krishna Temple, which featured a selection of traditional Sanskrit songs and prayers adapted for the commercial marketplace. On two of these songs, George added dobro parts, indicating he'd already begun to explore the nuances of slide guitar playing. George was obviously capable of producing his own album if he wanted to, but as he developed ideas for his songs in the early months of 1970, he realized he wouldn't be able to do everything himself. George had played on the session for John Lennon's single Instant Karma, produced in January by Phil Spector, and he'd attended all of the mixing sessions Spector had done for the Beatles' Let It Be album in March. Spector seemed like the natural choice. Longtime Beatles friend and associate Klaus Vormann played bass on about half of All Things Must Pass, but even when he wasn't playing, he attended the sessions just to listen because he enjoyed what George was doing so much. George spent most of the time in the studio and uh, Phil was doing the recording, which uh, I found very helpful and it was really good. George likes to play and likes to be with the musicians and and uh, he was uh, playing the song to us, and, and, if, and we all had headphones on. We know what it's like, so we were That's all true. in contact. But he was, uh, Phil was really in charge of the technique and the, te uh, the, the engineer. George, in that case, if he, uh, we hadn't had a Phil, uh, he would have to do the producing and the playing and right. communicating with the musician. In this case, it was that he had a partner who was, it was more like a partner. It was not like saying, oh, Phil, you are the producer and I'm the musician. That wasn't the case. It was much more like a collaboration. On May 26th and 27th, for the benefit of Spectre and the other musicians who would be joining the sessions, George recorded demos of all the songs he was considering for the album. The first day, the 26th, Ringo and Klaus accompanied him, and he taped a demo of My Sweet Lord. In early 1970, George said in an interview with the BBC that he wanted to put together a backing band for Apple artists, a group of musicians who could accompany artists that the label had signed, in the way that Motown and Stax had a stable of session musicians for their artists. George had already taken steps toward this on the albums he produced for Doris Troy and Billy Preston, where he employed people like Klaus, Peter Frampton, Alan White, and even Eric Clapton and Ringo Starr. As he put together what would become All Things Must Pass, George drew all of these musicians, and many more, into his own sessions. A large cast of characters, of course, was a perfect fit for producer Phil Spector, who famously filled the tiny recording space at Gold Star in Los Angeles with so many musicians that they found it difficult to move around in the studio without disrupting the microphones. The space wouldn't be quite so tight in EMI Studio 3, the home base for these recordings, 
but Spectre would, at least at first, have his army to command. Because there were so many people playing at these sessions in different configurations and no apparent documentation of who attended, it seemed for decades that a definitive list of who played what on each song would be impossible. The blur of time and the conflicting memories of the participants didn't make things any easier. But Ken Womack, who's working on a biography of Beatles assistant Mal Evans, recently discovered something interesting. So I got on a Zoom call with him, and he shared his screen so we could look over this newly discovered material. Yeah, so just walk us through. What are we looking at here? So we're looking at Mal Evans' diary from Thursday, May 28, 1970. And, of course, at this point, Mal still works for the Beatles and Company, always had, uh, at least since August 1963, and will until his death in January 1976. You can see here, essentially, Mal stage managing the All Things Must Pass album. So what he would do, particularly after Apple became less effective as an administrative unit, and that essentially happens after Alan Klein ascends to the directorship and Neil Aspinall is put in mothballs for several years. At that point, Mal is actually carrying around a pretty significant wad of petty cash so that he can pay the studio musicians, the session men, out of that money. So a lot of what he's doing here is keeping track of the personnel simply so that he can pay them appropriately for how many hours and how many tracks upon which they appear. And in this case, for all things must pass. It wasn't just to write things down, to write it down. He had a, had a working reason to do this. Absolutely. So he's, he's not just keeping track of studio notes. Thank goodness he did, right? But right. he really is performing an administrative function here, an accounting function. So he needs to get it right because he's going to be challenged if he's incorrect by George's memory, which is pretty good. He will be challenged by the players who will say, hey, wait a minute, I was there on June 11th, right? He will be challenged by the person dispersing the petty cash at Apple who has to report to Alan Klein. So there are a lot of balls in the air as far as Mal is concerned. And he was a big man with a very little ego and he did not like to be called on the carpet it would keep him up at night. So he was very, very careful on how he recorded this information. So who do we have here? Who's playing on this date? But what we see are the classic players. He actually mentions pianists on here. Up at the top, yeah. So let's, I guess let's just start at the top and, you know. You got it. So, so he'll list people like, well, Ken Craddock, question mark. Nicky Hopkins crossed out, which tells us that Nicky was probably expected to be there on May 28th. Eric Clapton underlined. He, of course, was a regular at the sessions. Ringo's playing drums on this day. And there is a pianist who shows up with a big check mark next to his name, Gary Brooker. And you see other names. It's like possible people are listed up here. It's like, who can we get to play on this? Sure. So in that vein, we have Peter Frampton. And then particularly interesting with a squiggly line underneath, Keith Richards is listed there. And, you know, in our work, that didn't come up, did it? Peter Frampton obviously comes in later and he played on Doris Troy session in 1969. But yeah, 
Keith Richards is not anywhere in these sessions. So it, it's, um, it's almost like he's casting a very wide net just to see who he can get because he, he knows he needs all these people. And then after that, we get our raw session data. And this is pretty typical for these entries, although there's no set format. He lists the songs that they worked on. And that day it was Wawa and My Sweet Lord. And so who do we have? Who are the players? Well, we do have a, a cast of thousands, right? <laughs> <laughs> or at least a dozen. I note on Wawa, we have George on guitar, Eric on guitar, Ringo on drums. Klaus is playing bass. We have Pete on acoustic. That would be... Pete Ham. Right, from Badfinger fame. We have Joey on acoustic. That's Joey Molland, also from Badfinger. And then we have Mike Gibbons playing tambourine. So we have three-fourths of Badfinger. We have Gary Brooker on piano. Alan White is playing congas. I believe we have a guy named Mal Evans playing maracas. Yeah. And then we have Bobby Whitlock on electric piano. And that's Wawa. After recording, George and the band went into the control room to listen to playback, which was much different than what they'd heard playing the song in the studio. In Martin Scorsese's Living in the Material World documentary, George remembered his initial reaction to the sound. And it sounded really nice in the studio, all this nice acoustics and piano and no echo on anything. We did it for hours until we, you know, he had it right in the control room. Yeah. And we went in to listen to it, and I listened to it, and I just thought, I hate it. It just is so horrible. Did you and say I, that to I, him? I, yeah, I said, it's horrible, I hate it. Eric said, oh, I love it. So I said, well, well you can have it on your album then. But <laughs> I grew to like it. With one high-energy tune in the can, they turned next to My Sweet Lord. One, two, one, two, three, four. And then who do we have for My Sweet Lord? We have George playing acoustic guitar. Eric is joining him on acoustic guitar. Ringo, still there for drums. Klaus is on the bass still. Gary Brooker on piano. And we still have our bad fingers. We have Pete on acoustic. We have Joey also playing acoustic. It looks like Mike Gibbons is sitting out for this one. Alan White is now on tambourine. And Bobby Whitlock has shifted over to harmonium. Twenty-year-old John Leckie would be second engineer on all but one of the sessions for All Things Must Pass, assisting veteran engineer Phil McDonald. Leckie had only begun working at EMI in February 1970, and this album was his first big project at the studios, so his memories of these sessions are consequently very strong. You know, the first day there were so many musicians, and, and miraculously we, we set it all up and recorded two tracks which ended up on the record. But my memory really is having a lot of people and 
and Phil Spector almost walking the corridor saying, hey, can you play piano, you know, or do you want to do, do some hand claps, or do you, can you play tambourine, you know. <laughs> my memory of it really is good fun, fun sessions, even though I was terrified, and it was my first session. One of the things I remember about that with the guitar rhythm of My Sweet Lord is that when you added the tape echo, the repeat, which is a tape delay, and it's tuned to the speed of the track, rhythm is tuned to the speed of the track, it reaches a sweet point. And I guess I learned a lot by watching Phil Spector and Phil McDonald make lots of guitars sound like one big guitar. Only takes two and 16 were complete, with the latter being chosen as the master. Even in its basic state, though, it already had a sound, and Spector wanted to apply his trademark mixing techniques to the recording. John Kurlander, who's gone on to become a Grammy-winning recording engineer, was in 1970 still an assistant engineer at EMI, where he'd worked with the Beatles on their Abbey Road album. They were in Studio 3, I think, and they called me in and they said, we just need you to do a rough mix for my sweet lord, so go into Studio 4, Room 4, which was like down the corridor, this little remix room. And they said, go and set up this list of equipment and Phil Spector will be along in about 15 minutes. So I went in there and set it all up and it had all these, you know, tape loop, tape machines, like two or three tape loops. And I kind of got everything organized. And I I hadn't done any engineering at all really at that point. I was just an assistant. And Phil Spector walked in and he basically dictated the mix to me. He said, like, raise this fader, now feed it through this delay, and now add a bit more feedback on the delay. That's it, a bit more. All right, now slow it down a bit. That's it. And the thing that I remember so clearly is I think the whole thing took about 15 minutes. And at the end of the 15 minutes, there was a mix, a rough mix of My Sweet Lord that sounded exactly like the Phil Spector sound. It, It is completely, you know, he'd made it his own. And without laying a finger on any of the buttons or control makes it because he wasn't interested in, in actually hands-on but it was like giving an assistant like shorthand notes or something like dictating the thing 100 percent that was like how well he knew his formula and how to do that and i'm like sitting there with him listening to this finished mix and I'm wow, I did that, but I didn't do it. <laughs> so yeah, somewhere, somewhere on a little piece of tape is my rough remix with Phil Spector. That mix has never seen the light of day, but there was much more work to do. For the time being, however, this is where George left the song. He would spend the next month and a half recording basic tracks for the rest of the songs on the album, finally wrapping up band sessions on July 3rd. He did one more solo session on July 25th and then turned his attention to what would become a very long period of post-production on the album. EMI Studios at Abbey Road was still only an eight-track recording facility, and recording a large group of musicians live meant mostly using all eight tracks, doubling and tripling up on parts on each track. For instance, the four acoustic guitars on My Sweet Lord were recorded to two tracks on the multi-track tape. To do more overdubs, George would need more tracks, and the only 16-track recording studio in London at this point in 1970 was Trident Studios. Incidentally, former EMI engineer Ken Scott, who worked on numerous Beatles sessions, including the White Album, had begun working at Trident, where he oversaw all the work done there 
on All Things Must Pass. By this point, though, Phil Spector had left the picture. With a studio full of musicians to direct, Spector had been engaged and in control. But as George moved into overdubbing vocals and slide guitar alone in the studio, Spector began to drift. For the first time in his life, he started drinking, which made him increasingly unreliable and something of a danger to himself. He headed back to Los Angeles for treatment, and George sent him rough mixes of all the songs for feedback. Now, George was on his own, effectively producing himself, adding track after track of slide guitar and vocals. Onto My Sweet Lord, he overdubbed a distinctive duet with himself, playing two slide guitar parts in harmony. George had always been a strong harmony singer in the Beatles. It was George, after all, who suggested ending She Loves You with a G-E-D vocal harmony, which closed the song on an unexpected and satisfying sixth chord. For his own album, he would apply these same vocal harmony skills, but he pushed far beyond anything he'd ever done with the Beatles. Given the chorus of voices George envisioned for this recording, even 16 tracks wouldn't be enough, forcing Ken Scott to push the technology farther than ever. Here's Scott discussing this process at a talk in 2014 for the Red Bull Music Academy. All of the backing vocals, the George O'Hara Smith singers, as it says on the, the, the album, they're all George. It, it was, we spent hours and days and weeks doing the backing vocals. And the way we do it is George would go down, he'd put down the first part, we'd put down like four of him doing it, then we'd be bouncing his four vocals onto another track at the same point he's singing live. Then he'd start to put on the next harmony and as after we'd put four down, we'd mix the, the first track with the five initial tracks down to that other one with him singing live and just gradually kept on going back and we'd get something that used to happen a lot that doesn't happen now is we would slow the tape machine down so that he could reach the high points and he'd just sing it slower and we'd put it up to normal speed and he'd be up that much higher and that's how all of the backing vocals are done that entire album this was unexpected even from people who were relatively familiar with george's talents one of those people was chris thomas a producer who's had a storied career working with roxy music the pretenders elton john and many others He'd first worked with George on the White Album while assisting George Martin, and on All Things Must Pass, he had played Moog Synthesizer on one of the earlier sessions at EMI. Thomas remembers showing up at Trident and hearing the results of these overdubs for the first time. I went down to Trident Studio one day. I went there to do some more Moog stuff, and when I walked into the room, there were all these voices, and it sounded like just like hundreds of guitars, hundreds of voices, and these were this was like the chorus of My Sweet Lord. I mean, and this thing sounded enormous, you know. I remember walking in and hearing that and going, wow, you know, and like, yeah. speaking to him, I was like, who's doing that? And, you know, Jules saying, oh, that's all me. But it takes so long, my Lord, Hallelujah. my sweet Lord, Hallelujah. 
This work was done September 2nd, during a week of vocal overdubs that also saw George multiply himself into a chorus of 22 voices for the song Hear Me Lord. Finally, in September, it came time to add the orchestral arrangements. But it wasn't Phil Spector who directed these. George commissioned these arrangements from John Barham, whom he had known since 1966 and whom he had worked with on several occasions, including the soundtrack to the film Wonderwall. Barham preferred to answer questions by email, and over a period of several months, he provided long, detailed descriptions of his role in the making of All Things Must Pass. For the purposes of this podcast, I've asked composer Joseph Lawrenson to read excerpts from Barham's emails. I worked with George in Friar Park shortly after he and Patty had moved in. At that time, they spent most of their time in a large kitchen, which doubled for dining room and sitting room. On one occasion, George invited me to come over alone to join him and Patty for dinner. We ate in the kitchen and the food was delivered by an Indian takeaway service. Immediately after eating, without speaking, George picked up a guitar and began playing and singing one song after the other. I hadn't seen George do this before, so I found it unusual. The songs he sang were those that he subsequently recorded on the All Things Must Pass album. Looking back on that evening, I guess George wanted to know how I would react to the songs, as he may have already decided to ask me to do the string arrangements. In addition to this private performance, George asked Barham to be present for many of the sessions for basic tracks on the album, sometimes having him play keyboards. When it came time to write the orchestral scores, George had very specific ideas about what he wanted. We went through the arrangements in a large, poorly decorated room which contained only an upright piano and two chairs. In preparing the arrangements, George would sing and play ideas on the guitar. George's way of communicating what he wanted for the orchestral accompaniment was usually by singing the top line. All of the inner voice was left to me. The string score for My Sweet Lord, recorded September 18th, required 22 musicians, eight violins, eight violas, four cellos, and two double basses. I asked John if he would send me scans of his scores for My Sweet Lord and Isn't It a Pity for use as the end papers for our book. But as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, my curiosity didn't stop there. Once I had these scores in hand, I wanted to hear them, and I wanted to be able to play them for the podcast. Of course, hiring 22 string players in a recording studio would be incredibly expensive, but I found another solution. Many composers now use high-end sample libraries to create music for television and film productions, and while nothing can beat the sound of live performers, these samples are great for demo purposes. So I commissioned Joseph Lawrenson to recreate these scores using sample libraries made with the BBC Orchestra.
After five months of work, All Things Must Pass was finally ready for the record shops. Apple had originally planned to release My Sweet Lord as a single that November, but George decided against it, fearing it would detract from sales of the album. Meanwhile, Capitol Records released the single in the U.S. on November 23rd. By December 14th, it had sold a million copies, and on January 2nd, 1971, My Sweet Lord reached number one in the Billboard singles charts, while All Things Must Pass was the number one album. Also in January 1971, Melody Maker reported that DJs in England were playing My Sweet Lord on the radio and clamoring for its release as a single. George finally assented, and on January 15th, the single went on sale in the UK. By the end of the month, it was selling 30,000 copies a day, and by mid-February, the single and album would repeat the tandem number one performance on the British charts. The first number one album and single by a solo Beatle they would remain at the top of the charts through George's birthday on February 25th. By the end of 1971, 20 different artists had recorded covers of My Sweet Lord, including two straight gospel arrangements based on Billy Preston's original, Nina Simone's powerful 18-minute live recording, an easy listening version by Andy Williams, and even a couple of reggae versions. As you probably already know, while My Sweet Lord was still number one, the publisher of the song He's So Fine, a 1963 hit by the Chiffons, sued George claiming copyright infringement due to similarities in the melody of My Sweet Lord. The details of this are outside of the scope of this podcast. We cover that in the book if you'd like to read the whole story. But one point George made in his testimony at trial is relevant to what we're discussing here. While he insisted that he didn't intentionally plagiarize the melody from He's So Fine, he also asserted that, despite the similarities, it's the production of the song that made the most impact. The question underlying this idea is, if My Sweet Lord had been sung to the arrangement of He's So Fine, would it have been a hit? Join us for our next episode when we continue our exploration of All Things Must Pass with the making of Isn't It a Pity. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me. Jason Krupa. Special thanks to Klaus Vorman, Chris Thomas, John Leckie, John Kurlander, and John Barham for sharing their memories of working with George Harrison. And thanks to Joseph Lawrenson for recreating the score for My Sweet Lord. And thanks to Ken Womack for sharing a sneak preview of his research on Mal Evans. 
Ken's biography of Mao will be out in early 2023, and the paperback edition of our book, All Things Must Pass Away, will be out later in 2022, fully revised and with a new appendix, including all of these newly discovered session details from Mao's diary. If you'd like to hear the complete demo of My Sweet Lord, as well as take one of Wawa, each of which I played earlier, as well as many other outtakes from these sessions, check out the All Things Must Pass box set released by the Harrison Estate. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PT Beatles, and for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. Let's go. I really want to see you on